Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Y'all stay standing, if you would. If you beat me to the punch and sat down, go ahead and come back up. Because I would love to read this verse uh, together all as a church family. This is the verse that we are going to be looking at today. It is uh, like a cannonball, pretty small but potent, can take out a lot of our enemies. So let's read this slowly together from Romans 8, chapter 1. Ready? Go. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you want to do it again? Let's do it again. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you may take a seat. Uh, I'm excited to open up uh, Romans chapter 8. Honestly, we're going to be in this chapter for uh, quite a few weeks because it's an incredibly important chapter. Uh, last summer, I got to take my family to Colorado for a week. We had some vacation time, and uh, one of our trips wound us in this little bitty town called Cripple Creek, uh, which is actually a gambling town. That's uh, also where I took my wife on our honeymoon, and we paid the penny slots because that's all we could afford and set ourselves a $2 limit. Uh, but last year, uh, when we went, we took the family. We went to this uh, gold mine called the Molly Kathleen Gold Mine. And in 1891, there was a lady named Molly Kathleen that was there. And this was in the middle of the big gold boom where they were finding gold all over Colorado. And uh, somebody actually had told her about a herd of elk. And so she was out looking for this herd of elk, trying to chase them down and got tired running up this mountain. And she sat down and, uh, to rest herself. And when she sat down, she, she looked at the ground and she found a huge gold nugget that had lots of quartz in it. It was reflected back up on her and uh, that was worth quite a bit of money at the time and so she ran straight to town and she bought that area she uh, staked a claim and uh, they began to dig and mine and uh, while it would be awesome how many of you would love to walk outside in the sands of West Texas find a giant gold nugget you know what's better than a gold nugget a gold mine uh, we go down in this gold mine. There is an elevator shaft where you go a thousand feet down into the earth, and there's miles and miles of uh, horizontal gold shafts. They've extracted uh, almost half a billion dollars worth of gold from the Molly Kathleen over the years because what's better than a gold nugget? A gold mine. Romans chapter 8 is a gold nugget that if you have stumbled upon it and you've read it once, you could be like, wow, that is unbelievable. That is awesome. Maybe it could change your life. It's also a gold mine. You can spend the rest of your life, and I honestly will highly encourage you to do that, to make Romans 8 your life, to spend your life focusing on it, memorizing it, thinking about it, meditating on it, because it doesn't just talk about how you become a Christian or how life like a Christian. Romans 8 will carry you all the way through every season of your life as a Christian. It is literally a gold mine that if you spend the time to really dig down deep, you'll extract some things 
that will serve your life and your family and your, uh, your heritage and generations after you. It will serve you very well. Now, I believe um, what, um, what we're looking at today, it's just, it's, it has the ability to change your life, not just today, but every day, from, the, from here until you die. So the greatest book uh, that has ever been written is the Bible. This has changed the course of history. This has changed more lives than any other book. Even Dave Ramsey's book doesn't even come close. This has been printed in more languages than any other book. It's been uh, pushed across the globe. 3,500 languages on planet Earth have some portion of this book translated into their language. 1,500 languages across the globe have the entire New Testament that they can read in their own language, 700 uh, people groups, 700 languages have the entire Bible translated. Uh, Nothing even comes close to the effect of this book. This is the most uh, important book, the most powerful book. And we looked at the beginning of this series that in this book that's made up of 66 books, um, that the letter to the Romans, uh, the book that we are in, is quite often talked about as the most profound and important book of the Bible. So you have the most important book, which is the Bible in history. You have the most important letter in that book, which is arguably Romans. And then inside of Romans, most people that I know uh, would agree if you stack 10 theologians up next to one another and you ask them, what is the most important chapter in the most important letter in the most important book? And they would say, Romans 8. I was hoping some of you wouldn't say, Song of Solomon 4. It's Romans 8. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, this is the best chapter in the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Romans 8 is the brightest gem of them all. And Romans 8 starts out with a therefore. And if you know, you know, if you find the word therefore, you have to what? You have to go back and look and see what it's. Therefore, this therefore is the hinge um, that all of Romans swings on. So this is the main shift in the book. The first half of this book, chapters 1 through 7, have to do with the gospel, that we need the gospel. It explains the gospel. It explains what Jesus has done in the gospel and how we receive the gospel. And then this therefore pivots the entire book, not just talking about our need for the gospel, which he makes the case in the early chapters of Romans, that we desperately need the gospel, that we're guilty, that we're condemned, that we're sinners, that we violated the righteous and the holy commands of God, and therefore we're under his just condemnation. And a lot of people, they don't like that idea, yet we're justice warriors for everything. We love justice. We want justice. Have you ever seen a movie uh, where the bad guy gets away, uh, gets away with something bad? Something inside of you burns up because you want justice. You demand justice. And so many times we demand justice everywhere, yet try to deny it of God. And yet you see in the opening pages of Romans that we're rightly under the judgment of God. We need the gospel. And then he talks about what the gospel is. But this therefore shifts to the effects and the implications of the gospel, which are twofold. So the first therefore is Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore, because of the gospel, and then it deals with the internal implications, what that is supposed to do in your soul right now to change you from the inside out. So the first, therefore, is the, the implications of the gospel internally for you as a Christian. And then there's another, therefore, that shows up in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning it's moving to the implications and the effects of the gospel externally. 
So today we're going to look at what is internally the effects of the gospel, and then we'll get later on to it begins to unpack externally. What are, how does that change our relationships? Uh, what are the implications of that with us and the government, uh, with us in the church, with us in our family, with us in suffering? Um, so this is a monstrous therefore. It's gone. It's in my Bible. It's still here. There is therefore now. So this therefore is linking everything that we have looked at and studied for the last seven chapters about the gospel. What he's about to say is only true because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, in our place, for our sins. Therefore, uh, because of the gospel. Therefore, there is now. Everybody say now. There is now. Oftentimes when we explain the gospel and we talk about things, maybe that was how you were first introduced to the message of the Bible. You were asked a question, hey, if you were to walk out and get hit by a bus and die, where, where would you go? And that's, a, that's an incredibly important question, but I think sometimes what the church has not done a great job of while we talk about the gospel has huge implications for where, where you will exist and what that will look like for all of eternity. What Paul's saying is it has monstrous effects for how you live your life now. So what we're about to unpack and what you're about to learn is it's not just what, what's going to happen to you in eternity, although that's unbelievably important. It is about what it truly means to walk in the freedom and the joy of Christianity now. There is therefore now. And I think what he's going to address internally for those who are in Christ, what that does is this is going to attack one of the greatest enemies that we have, honestly, just as as human beings, um, but also, I believe, a challenge that we have as Americans and just in our current culture, because in our current culture, we've got just a lot of uh, insecurities. People are insecure about a lot of different things because they're finding their identities in something outside of Christ, and that brings with it uh, a low-grade guilt that just seems to always be there, that you don't measure up to what God uh, desires, you just feel like he's always frustrated with you and he's always upset with you and there's a, a low-grade shame maybe that, that comes with you. And so uh, Romans 8 is going to say that there's some power to the gospel that's going to hopefully invade your heart and change your life right now. Is the gospel about eternity? Yes. Is it also about here and now and today? Yes. There is, therefore, because of the gospel, Now, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, I don't know Greek. I have a lot of software that I can do a lot of study of Greek, and I looked at that word, and you know what no actually means in the Greek? No. (laughs) It means no. It means no. It means like if you're in Christ, there is zero condemnation. There's none. There's zilch. There's nada. There's absolutely no condemnation condemnation. And so if you're in Christ and you feel condemned, you feel guilty, you feel like you don't measure up, then you just need to know that that is not from God because in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I want to talk about um, where condemnation comes from because if this verse is true and yet so many times we feel like it's not true, we need to understand where these attacks come from and where these lies come from and deal with them based on the merits of the gospel and what God says um, because this says if you're in Christ, God has nothing against you. This means that if you're in Christ, there's nothing that you need to do to try to measure up. This means that if you're in Christ, there's nothing that you have to prove. 
that you're totally and absolutely accepted, that you belong, you're not an outsider. He has brought you in, adopted you into the family. Uh, I, I totally, um, I, I believe what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says that most of our troubles are due to, the, to our failure to realize the truth of this one verse. Most of our troubles, when we deal with shame and we're dealing with um, feelings that we just don't add up, that we're just not good enough, that God's frustrated with us, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Because we know that a lie, even if it's a lie and it's not true, it can still hurt us. I heard a story not too long ago of someone who went to the doctor and they got a diagnosis that they had cancer. And that drastically changed their life. It changed their outlook on things. It changed how they spent their time and how they spent their money and what they were nervous about and what they prayed for. And a year later, they went back in and the doctor said, I'm sorry, we misdiagnosed you. That wasn't right. So the whole time, this had been a a, a lie, it was a mistake, it wasn't based on the truth, but because they believed it, it changed everything about their life. You can be totally not under condemnation, yet believe that you are, and it changes so many things. That's the Lord waking us up, getting you ready, because this is important, it's that important. So where, where does this feeling, and to just to be honest, like I feel this, and I'm just assuming that if you're honest, there are moments where you feel condemned, where you feel like there's something missing, that you're not doing enough, that Jesus is displeased with you, that you need to earn something, you need to work towards something. And so I want to unpack, if this says there is therefore now no condemnation, then where does condemnation come from and how do we deal with it? Oftentimes condemnation, of basically this feeling that uh, we, we're guilty or that we have some shame and insecurity, Oftentimes when you get really uh, defensive over certain things, that, that really kind of shows that um, we're living in this world of condemnation. You have some kind of self-hate, that you have something that you're just uh, incredibly frustrated with about your own life. Uh, we cr- become way more sensitive to criticism. Um, if you find yourself in this camp where you feel condemned, then you can't tolerate criticism because they're attacking you at your core. You feel unworthy. You feel like you have a need to prove yourself to God and to everyone else. So where does that come from? I think one of the first places it comes from is from our past. Uh, Sometimes if you start thinking about your past or if uh, the Bible is clear that Satan is the accuser and Revelation talks about Satan being the accuser of the brethren, meaning that he comes at Christians with lies. He's the father of lies and so he's going to uh, birth lies and try to convince us that they are true and if we'll live according to those things, even if they are not true, but we believe that they are, it can debilitate you in your, in your life, in your relationships, in your soul. So he will say, he will, he will try to condemn you based on your past. He'll come in and he'll whisper into you, do you remember when you did this? Do you remember when you went there? Do you remember when you drank that? Do you remember when you shot that up? Do you remember when you went to this place? You had that relationship that was sinful. And before long, these accusations and these lies that that is your identity trying to condemn you, you can internalize that and, and, and truly believe that that's who you are. When the Bible is incredibly clear that for those who are in Christ, you are a new creation, that you are not defined by your past, you're not condemned by your past. So when you feel this kind of voice inside trying to condemn you because of your past and you feel like it's Satan, then you just, this is just a tactic, I think it's helpful, you whisper back to Satan and you tell him, well, at least I didn't lose a fiddle contest to a hobo down in Georgia, right? 
I'm just kidding. Like you've you got to be able to, to, to fight against that because that's, that's simply not true. When you're trying to, maybe it's people from your past that knew you, BC, uh, friends or relationships that knew you before you were a Christian, and they try to condemn you. Like, you're not a Christian. Listen, I was there for college. I saw what you did. I, I witnessed it. And when you feel this temptation to, uh, to feel like you're condemned because of your past, you need to know Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's already been paid for. You don't live there. That's that, even though that's true, maybe those are things that you did. They don't condemn you or define you if Jesus says that you're not condemned. A few years ago, I got a, uh, a letter in the mail. It was a tax bill. And I got super nervous because I saw the amount and I was already stressed out and anxious about uh, trying to pay this tax bill until I looked down and I realized the address was from our old house in Irving that we had sold. And I remember thinking... <laughs> Suckers, I don't even own that house anymore. You can't come at me with this tax bill. It's somebody else's. Like when somebody comes at you, when something inside comes at you to try to condemn you based on something that's in your past, you can remind them you don't live there anymore. That's already been paid for. Jesus is what Jesus says is more important than what your past says. If your past tempts you to feel like you're condemned, this says there is therefore now no condemnation, none, zero, none whatsoever. Second thing, I think oftentimes we feel condemned by other people. Sometimes other people, it's not just your past, but people will say that you don't add up, that you're not uh, acting like a Christian, that you're not doing things maybe that Jesus would do, and sometimes there's some voices that will just really try to condemn you, uh, to make you feel guilty, to, to lump the law on you and say that you need to be condemned because you don't quite meet the law perfectly, you don't do everything that you should do and avoid everything that you should avoid. And again, you need to know that if someone says that you're condemned and tries to make you feel guilty and that you don't add up, it's more important what God says about you than what that person says about you. If they say you're condemned and Jesus says you're not, this is the one that you need to believe and that you need to trust and that you need to walk in. They can condemn you all they want, but if Jesus doesn't, that's what matters. And then oftentimes, um, comparison. Uh, we feel condemned because we try to compare ourselves to someone else. And we kind of get in this, this, this game where we feel like God is um, not just putting us next to a standard of perfection or of Jesus, but is a standard of being better than the person next to you. Right? It's like uh, if you spend enough time in the mountains or around bears, I don't know if you spend regularly a lot of time in bear country, uh, but not a lot of bears out here. Right? But if you do, then inevitably you'll get the joke where there's two people and you, you're sitting around a campfire and you're talking about, oh my gosh, I just realized I can't outrun a bear. And eventually somebody will say, well, you don't have to run faster than a bear. You just have to what? Run faster than Bob. <laughs> like because the bear will just catch the slower one and like sometimes we kind of tease that out into our own lives like ah you know what I I think I think I think God just kind of measures us next to one another and as long as I'm better than somebody else I'm okay although that's not the measure that God uses he doesn't use this measure of if we're better than the person next to us he uses the measure of are we holy or are we unholy are we like Jesus or are we not? Are we righteous or are we not? And so when we finally realize that it's kind of a dead-end uh, road, uh, a futile effort to just be better than the next person, 
because God doesn't look down and say, oh, you're better than them, so you're fine. He measures us next to Jesus, and when we realize that we fall way short of that, which is Romans chapter 3, all fall short of the glory of God, then we put our uh, faith and our trust in Jesus. He changes us, he saves us, and he removes us um, from the hamster wheel of comparison. Because if you compare yourself with someone else, you end up one of two places, and neither of them are good. You end up looking at somebody and thinking, I do better than they do. Well, at least I don't do that, and at least I'm not, praise God that I'm not like the tax collector. And then you have this sense of pride. Um, So maybe you use comparison and you try to find somebody that's just not performing as well as you are, and so you feel much better about yourself. But I think quite often what happens is the opposite, that if we're not filled with pride when we compare, then we look at somebody else at, at their morality, at what, how they're accomplishing things in life, how they're working for Jesus, and then we're filled with condemnation or despair or a frustration that we can never be like them, we can never do what they're doing, we can never operate like they are, and so it fills us with either pride or this sense of condemnation. And you know this, that oftentimes when we compare, especially on social media, you're not comparing yourself to reality. You're comparing yourself to a highly edited reality that they only put forward what looks good for them, and so you're, in, in essence, comparing yourself to a mirage or something that doesn't exist, and some of you carry with you this sense of condemnation condemnation because you compare yourselves to other people or the mirage of other people and you just constantly feel like you don't measure up. You constantly feel like you're not doing enough, like Jesus is constantly frustrated with you, like God is constantly frustrated with you, wishing you would just get it, wishing you would just do better, wishing you would just conquer this sin that you've been struggling with. And you can carry with you this low-grade condemnation if you compare and yet like Paul refuses to play that game. He refuses to compare himself whether he ends up better or worse. He just, in, in Philippians 3, he talks about this. He, he puts forth his resume, says, listen, uh, if anybody can argue r- like good resume, then it's me. He says, I was born, I'm an Israelite, I was, I'm, I'm in the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee concerning righteousness from the law, blameless. He's like, you name it, I've, I, I, I've obeyed it. And then he just kind of abandons it all. He says, but I I set all that aside so that I might gain Christ and be found what? What does it say? Be found in him. It's the same exact phrase that Romans 8 talks about. Because when you're found in Christ, you don't have to compare yourself to someone else to feel prideful or condemned. You can be like Paul and say, listen, I don't want to be better. I don't want to be worse. I want to struggle with all of my might to be found in Christ. Could you imagine the temptation for the Apostle Paul to be and feel condemned by his past? I mean, so we, we talk about Paul all the time, and sometimes we even kind of talk about his past, that he was like literally a murderer of Christians. He basically invented Christian persecution. He was there in the opening pages of Acts um, when they were stoning de- the, the, the first deacon. Where they were stoning Stephen, crushing his skull and his body with stones in public until he was dead. And when they were done, they would lay their cloaks at the uh, feet of a, a man named Paul. And sometimes we kind of talk about that, but we don't really maybe think about what on earth would it have been like to be Paul? to have images of people that you had stoned to death come up in your mind and for Paul to fight back. Listen, that didn't condemn him because Paul was, 
no doubt Paul was preaching to himself in Romans 8 as much as to any of us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Paul wasn't condemned by his past because he knew that Jesus died for it and dealt with it. He wasn't condemned by, no doubt, the people that would bring his past up and his friends and and foes that would bring up the past and try to condemn him. He wasn't uh, condemned by about any of the challenges around him or the, 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 the opportunity to compare because he says, listen, I, I've, I've abandoned all that and my goal in life is to be found in Christ because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this truth, I mean, Jesus is the one that said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So even though this is true of you, if you're in Christ, you need to know that it's true and walk in this truth. So then the, the next question is, we know that there is therefore, because of the gospel, something has happened. There is therefore now, now, right now, you don't have to wait for it, this is yours in Christ to seize and lay hold of. No condemnation. See, a lot of people, especially in our, our culture, they kind of just end right there and they're like, hey, no condemnation. God doesn't judge. He doesn't condemn. Everybody's fine. We can throw a party because there's no condemnation. But listen, it's incredibly important in the Bible to finish a sentence. Amen? Like to get all the way to the period. Because if you stop, they're like, there's no condemnation. Like, awesome, God's fine with you, he's fine with me, he's fine with everybody. There's no hell, there's no judgment. And that's not where Paul stops. We've got to get all the way to the period. He says, there is, therefore, now, no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit says through Paul. And so you need to know that if you're not in Christ, this does not apply to you. You're still in danger. You're still under condemnation. You need to be saved or to be rescued. So this is the glaring question that I have for you, that even if you've been in church for decades, I think it would be fair for all of us to honestly ask this question because when you start talking about important things, spiritual things, eternal things, often in our culture what people will start to think about is if they're good enough and what they've done and what they haven't done. But that's not the question. The question isn't, do you feel like you're good? Do you feel like you're bad? The question is, is are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? This is uh, three things that I want to walk through for the rest of the time that we have together this morning. Because of just that phrase, in Christ, because everything hinges on that clarification. So I want to talk about what does it mean then to be in Christ? How do you get in Christ? And then what happens when you're in Christ? So what does it mean to be in Christ? How do you get in Christ? And what happens when you are in Christ? Number one, what does it mean if Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? What does that mean? Paul loves that phrase. That he uses, like, we kind of love the, the phrase and the, and the terminology of Christian um, that we would explain and define ourselves. If we follow Jesus, we would say we're Christians, and that's, that's biblically accurate. But that term is only used of us three times in the New Testament. It shows up in Acts first. And a lot of times, I think two of those three, it's talked about in a derogatory manner. Non-Christians making fun of us because, like, oh, you feel like you're a little small. Jesus is like, that's kind of what we're trying to do. So, but, but we love that term. But Paul loves the term in Christ or in 
him. Uh, and he, instead of three times that the Bible talks about Christians, 216 times the New Testament talks about us being in Christ. That our identity, like how we define who we are, is found in Christ. Our hope for salvation is in Christ. Our hope for change now and our hope for eternity with Jesus later, like everything about our identity has been changed, that we are in Christ. So what does it mean? It means that um, it's not a question of if you're a good person, but if you have been uh, transferred and you are found in Christ. In Christ defines a Christian that has been redefined by God, that they have been forgiven, they have been set free, they have been adopted, and they are now in Christ. So the second question is then how do you get in Christ? Paul throughout Romans has tried to make the case that our natural tendency to get in Christ is to work our way there, to try to earn our way there, to try to do good things, to read the Bible and try to obey the commands and do all the good things and avoid all the bad things, and that's just impossible. Paul's, Paul makes the case that uh, no one will be considered righteous based on the law, that the only way to get in Christ is by faith. And so I want to explain really what this means because in a, in a place like the Bible Belt, in a place like a, a country like the U.S. that was built on uh, Judeo-Christian values and a lot of values from the Bible, uh, it can be a dangerous thing when you start talking about faith if we don't really define what biblical faith is. Because it's not just believing the Bible is true and Jesus was a historical figure. It's not even enough to believe that Jesus was God. The Bible says the demons do that. Like, if, if, if that's all you got, then, you're like, you're up to the level of, of demon faith, right? Can we agree we want to get a little further than that? Biblical faith is when you abandon the idea that you can please God on your own and you completely shift your hope, not in what you can do, but what Jesus has done. It's when you completely abandon trying to go down this road of good works, you, 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 you move your faith from yourself to Christ. You stop trying to earn something and you start accepting something that was given to you. You don't trust your good works, you trust his good works. You don't focus on what you've done, but you focus on what Jesus has done. You don't wonder if you're good enough you know that Jesus was good enough. And this is Philippians 3. This is what Paul's struggling with. It's like, I've abandoned all that. I struggle that I might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, which is through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The only way for you to be found in Christ is to abandon our own efforts and to embrace his, to put your faith in Jesus. That's different than just believing he exists. That's putting our identity, drawing our identity from, putting our hope in Jesus. That's how you get in Christ. Number three, what then happens when you're in Christ? And this, therefore, in chapter 8, verse 1, opens up a gold mine of things that are now yours in Christ that will take you an entire lifetime to to mine and to understand and to appreciate because there's so much that's given to the Christian when they are in Christ. So let me run through a few things. I've got, I think I've got uh, six things, and we may throw in a bonus there at the end if we just got a lot of free time. Number one, what does it mean when you're in Christ? First off, it means that you're changed. Everybody say changed. Changed. 
the, the, the biblical word that would talk about this kind of process from what happens when somebody moves to being in Christ would be converted, which means changed, like not the same, different. We were this way, and now we're in Christ, and we're changed. And so just uh, some of these things, as I walk through these things, that are that they're things that happen to you when you're in Christ, they can be also used as questions for you to ask, how can I truly tell that I'm in Christ? Because over time, these things will be true of you if you're in Christ. And number one is that we are changed. We are converted. Jesus changes us. And so if you claim that maybe you're a Christian or you're in Christ, but for years, nothing in your life or in your heart has changed, then that's a question you need to ask. Are you truly in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, you're changed. You're converted. Paul says it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. Like created, recreated, brand new. Things change. So God changes you. When you're in Christ, He changes you. Number two, if you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is in you. We'll get there next week, but this is later on in chapter 8. I believe it's verse 9. He says, But you, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So when your faith is in Christ, then in turn He puts His Spirit in you, which is the, the promise Jesus made, right? He said, it's better that I go away. How many of you have ever read that and you think, that doesn't make sense. I think it's best, Jesus, if you stay. But Jesus says, it would be, it's better if I leave and I go because if I leave and I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit and then you don't get to be with God beside him. He gets to be in you. That, like, that, that's the promise of being in Christ is that when you're in Christ, God dwells in you. I think uh, Pastor James talked about this last week when, when Paul just does this massive shift with all these personal pronouns about himself and his struggle and in his own feebleness to obey the law. And then it just explodes with not talking about him anymore like chapter 7. But in chapter 8, he just starts talking about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does for those who are in Christ. So number two, he is in you. He's in you. Number three, if you're in Christ then you begin to bear fruit. Jesus says that a good tree bears good fruit. And again, this is a good diagnostic question where if you have some time between your conversion where you believe that you met Jesus and if nothing has changed, you're not bearing fruit, that's a good question to ask. Am I truly in Christ? Do I just know some things about Him or have I actually put my faith in Him and the Holy Spirit then filled me up? We bear fruit. Number four... This should not be as profound as it is in West Texas. It should be very simple, yet I think it's, it, it's profound to think about. When you're in Christ, you love Jesus. <laughs> How many of you thought, well, yeah, that's kind of a no-brainer, but I ask people all the time in Midland, Texas, are you a Christian? Yes. And they say yes, but they say yes, and they're defining that based on their actions and their morality. And if you were to ask a different question, you just kind of get this puzzling look like, are you a Christian? Yeah. Do you love Jesus? Uh, huh. Who, who's, like, <laughs> like that, that's what I'm saying. There's a difference between 
living a decent and a moral life and being found in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, then over time you love Jesus more and more and more. We had somebody last week that was trying to express to us uh, that they were a Christian and they were walking through all these things and got through the whole thing and never mentioned Jesus once. If you're not growing in your love for Jesus, then you have to ask the question, are you truly in Christ? Because that's what it's all about. Like, that's, that's the baseline. For those who are in Christ, the, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is teaching us and helping us obey the commands. And what's the first and the greatest command? It's not to obey. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you growing in your love for Jesus? That's what happens when you're in Christ. You grow in your love for God. You grow in your love for Jesus. Number five, what else happens when you're in Christ? You begin to hate your sin. You hate your sin because God changes you. He begins to help you love what he loves and hate what he hates, and you find out that that's very different after you're in Christ. We already looked at Romans chapter 7 and understand that you can still sin, but when Christians sin, they're convicted that we're, we're convicted by that. The Holy Spirit convicts us, and there is a massive difference that you need to know between conviction and condemnation, okay? Big difference between conviction and condemnation. The Holy Spirit convicts Christians. He does not condemn Christians. Conviction is really focusing on an action or a sin, So if I am in Christ and I sin, the Holy Spirit will say, "Uh, Jason, I convict you, that's a sin, that action is a sin, you need to knock it off because that's going to lead to destruction and harm. That's very different than condemnation. Condemnation focuses not on the action but your identity. Condemnation is you're a sinner. That's who you are. That's your identity. And conviction is one of the things I think that proves that you're in Christ. If, listen... If you can sin and not feel bad about it, that should be a massive red flag. Shouldn't it? Like if the Holy Spirit lives inside of your heart and we willfully go against him, then those things should collide. Because he says, what has fellowship with with dark and lightness? They just can't get along. And so when Christians sin, not, not, not even if, when Christians sin, it's going to happen. It happened to Paul in Romans 7. But when it happens, we feel this conviction that gets us back on the right track, that gets us back to life. That's very different than condemnation. Conviction focuses on the sin and the action. Jesus trying to push us back to life. Condemnation tries to force that identity upon us. Sixth thing, what happens... When you're in Christ, you are secure. And I don't, I don't even necessarily mean just for eternity, that your eternity is secure, although that is true. I'm talking about the, the now, that there is therefore now no condemnation, that you are secure. You don't have to live an insecure life. I think this is the issue right now that is facing our culture, and especially even Christians in our culture, is this, this struggle to believe that, in fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is true because so many are living with such deep insecurities. Because we have to put our identity in something. As human beings, we draw our identity from something, and you only have two choices. You only have two choices. You get to put your identity in Christ or in anything else. 
and your identity in anything else will ultimately breed insecurity because it's just not strong enough to define you as a human being, as an image bearer of God. I want to tease this out just for a minute because I think it's true and I think there's been a massive shift in our culture over these last 10 years. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the first negative feelings in the Bible, this is when Adam and Eve, they sinned and they brought sin into the human race, that they, for the first time, when they rebelled against God's authority and his commands, they felt three very negative feelings that you and I are very well aware of. They felt fear for the first time. They, they felt fear. They had never been afraid. How many of you could, you couldn't even imagine a life when you weren't afraid of something, afraid of the diagnosis, afraid of a car crash, afraid of cancer, afraid of getting laid off? Like, we just kind of understand this horrible human emotion that we weren't designed to have called fear. When they sinned, they felt fear. When they sinned, for the first time, they felt guilt. It says that they ran and hid because they knew that they had uh, been guilty before God. How many of you have ever felt guilty? Not a trick question. Everybody should raise their hand. Agreed? That's not a good feeling. Humans weren't designed to feel guilt. That's a product of sin. And they felt shame. They ran and they hid. All of a sudden they looked and they realized they were naked and they tried to cover their shame. Uh, If you have ever felt shame, it is a horrible human emotion. And so this fracture has caused this break in humanity and the human soul that shows up with fear it shows up with guilt, with shame, and most cultures will, na- will navigate towards one of those predominantly, and the entire culture will be built around that. So you have cultures like a lot of places in Africa where they are a fear culture, and so if they feel this fear, then the answer to that or the antidote to fear is to power. If the problem is fear, then the answer is power. And so they love when you talk about from the Bible stories where Jesus is powerful, You go to a fear-based culture and you start talking about Jesus casting out demons and he's more powerful than the things that we're afraid of, they love those stories. They gravitate to to those stories because it answers their problem. You go to places like uh, the United States, really the past 250 years, we have been a a guilt and innocence-based culture where that's why Billy Graham and a lot of the tracks that have uh, seen a lot of people come to faith in the last many decades have been not based on that Jesus is powerful, but that we can be like in a courtroom and we're declared innocent because our biggest feeling is guilt, and so we need to be declared innocent. And so we love Romans where it talks about us being innocent. But then you go to a place like Japan, was in Japan preaching years ago, and I remember that they would just gravitate towards very different things, and you can preach about power. It really didn't connect with them. You could preach about how Jesus makes us innocent. It didn't connect with them. They connected with things like the prodigal son because their biggest problem is shame. In Japan, if you uh, have shamed the family, it is worse. Uh, to, it's, it's better for you to have an honor killing and kill yourself than to bear that shame. And so their biggest problem and felt need is shame. And so they love the idea that the prodigal son comes back and he's given back his robe, he's given back his ring, he's given back his sandals, his honor is restored. I say all this to say I think our, our culture has made a, an incredible shift in the past 10 years to where we are a shame-based culture The biggest problem Americans have is identity. I think Christians are so, even Christians are confused. They're insecure because you can be a Christian, you can be in Christ and still not find your identity in him and be just wrought with insecurity. Let me read through a couple things that I think are just absolutely true. 
if you find your identity in your looks, right, you're just, you're just never going to be pretty enough. I, I read this the other day that supermodels that we would all say, yeah, they're probably the prettiest. You know what the number one thing they're insecure about? Their looks. And it's not because they're not pretty. It's because they're trying to find their identity in something that just simply cannot give to them. Um, what about your identity in your body? If your identity is in your body, you're never going to be fit enough. You're just not. You can be the most fit person in the room, but if that's where you define yourself, it's never going to be enough. It's going to produce always this low-grade shame that you could do better and just guilt if you eat a cookie and just like all these, these insecurities that come, come out of it. If your identity is in money, listen, you may not believe me, you will never have enough. If your identity is in your net worth, it will never be high enough where you finally get to the point you're like, I'm so secure. You're going to be insecure because your identity is in something besides Christ. What about business? If your identity is in your business, maybe you're a small business owner, maybe you've started something, I'm just saying, if your identity is in your business, it's never going to be big enough because it's not enough to define a human being. What about sports? If your identity is sports, you'll just never win enough. Uh, Have y'all seen this uh, new documentary that came out, I believe it was last year, about Michael Jordan? I thought it was Save the Last Dance, but that was Julia Stiles, I think, different one. It's the last dance, and I've I've known this for a long time because uh, Michael, just definitively, can we just say this, that he is the GOAT? Can we put that that to just He's the greatest basketball player, maybe athlete of all time, right, besides Jesus. And, and yet, if you kind of listen to him and hear him talk in interviews, like he, he's just incredibly threatened and insecure about his ability. So you can be even Michael Jordan. And if, that, if, if your identity is in your, uh, your sports and athletic ability, it's just never going to be enough. You're always going to be threatened by someone that says you're not the GOAT, right? What about your morality? If your identity is in how much you know the gospel, how many verses you know, what you know about Jesus, like that's so very different than your identity being in Christ. Then you'll have to push down other people that don't know as much of you. You'll have to try to share with the world what you know and how much you know about theology. And, and there's just, there's, there's no end to that. If your identity is in your morality, you'll never perform well enough. Uh, sometimes our identity, even as Christians, can be in our sin. Maybe we don't boast about it, but maybe we've just kind of said, like, that's just who I am. I just, I've had this sin in my life. I can't control it, and now I feel like that's my identity. If your identity is found in your sin, you'll never be good enough. Or if your identity is found in being sinned against, like some of you have been horribly sinned against. You've been abused. You've been emotionally abused. You've been sexually abused. You have been sinned against. And sometimes there is a tendency for you to try to take that on as your identity. That I, I, must, I must be worthless. That's how I was treated. That's how, that's how they, they dealt with me. And so that must be who I am. And if you internalize that you have been sinned against and think that's your identity, you will never feel like you're worthy. You'll never feel like you're beautiful. you never feel like you're important. But if your identity is found in Christ, you are secure. Nobody can come at you with criticism because what are they going to say? You sinned? You're like, yeah, I know. Jesus dealt with it. 
It doesn't define who I am. I'm not defined by my sin, by my past, by my present. I am defined by Jesus, not by my looks, not by my bank account, not by my possession. It completely sets you free where you're defined that you are in Christ. It deals with your fear. If you're in Christ, you don't have to be afraid of death. If Jesus defeated death, there's nothing less left for us to be afraid of. You don't have to deal with feelings of guilt. Why? Because Jesus died so that he might forgive you once and for all. You don't have to deal with shame and try and hide all the things that you've done bad, trying to self-promote all the things that you have done good. He's removed your shame because he was crucified. And you see this, uh, th- this intersection of all three of these things at the cross, and then I'm done. At the cross, there's a reason Jesus died the way he died. There is a reason that Jesus Christ was publicly condemned as guilty. There is a reason that Jesus Christ was put in a grave for three days to face death. And there is a reason that he was crucified in public naked because he had to face fear. Our our biggest fear is death. We've talked about this so much. All of your fears at some point, they end in death. That's what we're afraid of. Jesus met death and defeated it to take that one off the table. Jesus was condemned as guilty, and as Isaiah 53 says, that he was numbered among the transgressors, meaning everybody looked at him and says guilty. He was treated as if he was guilty, although he was not, so that he might remove that off the table, and he was utterly shamed. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if shame wasn't an issue that Jesus was trying to deal with, he could have been taken away quietly with lethal injection. But he was publicly shamed to endure the shame that we deserve so that he might restore our honor. See, the cross of Christ deals with all of the human conditions. And it restores to us what is rightfully ours now in Christ. I'll read this from Mark chapter 14 and I'm done. This is when Jesus was, was about to face the cross. Mark's explaining the situation that took him there. It says, are you, they're talking about Christ, they're putting him on trial. It says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Jesus was condemned so that you don't have to be. If you're not a Christian, you need to know the only way out for you is faith in Christ. If you're in Christ, I want you to put this verse down deep in your soul. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we love you, we need you, we praise you, we thank you, we lift you up, we want to glorify you and worship you and thankful that you put your spirit in us, that you've called us to be like you. Father, I pray that your spirit might fill each one of us up right now in this room, God, that your spirit might draw us to Jesus. God, if there's someone in this room that maybe they're a moral person, a good person, but they're not in Christ, would you draw them in and give them the faith to transfer their hope from themselves to Christ? God, for those who are in Christ, I pray that you would sear this verse on our hearts. 
and help us to live in the true freedom that you purchased for us in peace and in joy and in love because we don't have to earn anything. You're not frustrated with us. You're pleased with us because of Christ. There is no condemnation. For that we rejoice and we sing and we give you glory, we give you honor, we give you praise. We're thankful for what you've done and what you've given to us in Christ. And all of God's people said. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org. 